Hello, everybody. Welcome to Mental Health TV. We're really pleased to have you with us, despite it being such a hot day. So thank you very much for um, tuning in tonight. We've got a really interesting topic and very interesting guest. I'll introduce them in a moment. But we're going to be talking about public health, uh, community-based um, health assets, all that sort of things. It'll be a very wide-ranging uh, conversation. And before we get started, let me hand you over to Dave to tell you how you can join in, or just remind you how you can join in, because we really love to hear from you. Dave? Hi, everyone. Yes, so tonight, if you would like to join in the Facebook Live session, uh, all you need to do is either post on the Facebook Live feed or head over to Twitter and use the hashtag MHTV. Uh, we'll try and bring in any comments, questions that we can on either of those tonight. But without further ado, straight back over to you, Nikki. Okay, and to Heather. So Heather, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, well, hello, my name is Heather. And I'm a Queen's nurse, first of all, um, which is titled from the Queen's Nursing Institute, meaning that I show quality and leadership in community nursing. Um, I'm a nurse and entrepreneur, have two businesses, Brightness Management Limited, um, Breathchamp CIC, and loads of other things. Um, mm. Trusty in the third sector, uh, like to write a lot, <laughs> like to yeah. photograph things a lot. I'm generally curious about all things nursing. Absolutely. So we've tweeted out your links to your um, websites and to your Twitter feed. So if anybody wants to make sure that they are tuned into what you're doing, they can follow those links through and we'll be doing that oh, as yeah. we keep going through. So I guess one of the things that really jumps out in, in terms of the tons of roles that you do is kind of leadership. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about, about your thoughts on leadership, because remember when we first started talking about it, you were talking about the importance of, of understanding your worth. And I think sometimes that's, that can be quite hard for nurses. Yeah, so strange things happen in lockdown. So I was approached by the publisher Elsevier because mm. uh, I'd written a chapter in a charity book on uh, a survival guide to general practice nursing. Mm -hmm. And I was asked, do I want to write a book on leadership for student nurses? Hmm. So I had to think about that for a while and then decided that if I was to write a book on leadership for student nurses, I'd better um, work alongside student nurses because it's a long time since I was one. And who would who who am I to write for them without knowing them? So I practice an asset and strengths-based approach, which means that the student nurses became my equal partner. I use I saw them as assets and I saw them as having strengths. And uh, what I identified fairly early on, because I interviewed student nurses and put their case studies in my book, hopefully coming out next year. Um, is that they underestimated themselves massively. Mm. Um, they have this vision of leadership as being the person in charge when actually you can be a leader at any level. And there are different, different ways of being a leader, of, of course. Um, but it's for you as a, as a person, as a nurse, to be able to identify what your strengths are, what your good at um, mm. rather than what we usually do which is where are the areas that you're weak and let's make it up mm. and the student nurses that I met I describe it really as like walking a tightrope <clears throat> so usually they were driven the leaders um, student nurse community were driven by um, passion and values clear mm. as day same as me 
And when they followed that passion and values, they sort of walked ahead on the tightrope and they were really confident. And then when somebody said to them, oh, you know, you're, you're a great leader and, and things like that, they went, you know, who me? I mean, mm. these are, as you know, mm. some of the students we have today are extremely mature. They've had other careers, yeah. they're family people, mm. and, and yet they just weren't confident. And I think mm. a lot of that is the, the way that students are treated. I mean, I know you've got a session on yeah. not just student, and that's what I would say to them. Yeah, mm. so um, it took me a long time as a leader mm. to know who I was. Mm. I'm not the sort of person who leads large organisations. Um, I'm really not. Mm. Um, I'm the sort of person who come, comes up and has an idea and speaks about it, like I'm doing now, mm. you know, um, inspires people. Mm. Um, but if you ask me to follow through long term in the sort of organisational context, I'm really rubbish. Mm. <laughs> There's different types of leadership, to. isn't there? Yeah, you're right. Know yourself. Mm. I think you yeah. really have to know yourself and, and know your strengths. Mm. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that's true for, for nurses too. Because nurses are surrounded by other nurses most of the time, they don't realise how special they are. Organisational skills, ethical skills, uh, the ability to manage change processes. I mean, I've never seen a time in, in the NHS even, or even in the public sector, where we just weren't completely changing all the time. You know, this mythical time and everything's going to settle down. That's never going to happen because it's not real. You know, we were always um, making the best of a challenging, should we say, challenging situation and then thinking about um, how to make the most of the assets that we've got. And I think you're absolutely right. The idea about asset-based work and strength, recognising strengths is key for us to move forward. Why do you think it can be so hard to do sometimes? I think it's the culture of organisations. Th mm. Although I think that's changing. You know, I think there's a lot, a lot written about leadership at the moment and a lot of stress on developing leadership capabilities, mm. including in the undergraduate curriculum. But I think it's a cultural thing um, that quite mm. often we're not good at going up to people and say, you were really good at that as well. Um, and so people don't know. I, I didn't know, really until oh, a few chief executives and um, did help me along the way uh, mm. before I left the NHS 11 years ago. Um, but I, I think oh, there's a, a lot of people who are admired from far and actually you should go up to them and tap them on the shoulder. I do that all the time. And yeah. I tell them how great they really are. Yeah. Uh, and also, you know, I try and do the sort of self-fulfilling prophecy thing mm. Do that with mm. community members as well. Go up to them and say, have you ever thought of doing X? And maybe mm. I can introduce you to Y. Because um, mm. I'm a serial connector. We need mm. to do that for our student nurses mm. and for mm. our future leaders. Yeah. Think about how we can help them on the yeah. next on the next stage of their journey. Yeah. And, and I mean, no one just bounces out, do they? Knowing everything and knowing everybody and having connections. But sometimes they're sort of like senior colleagues where people just a bit further on. If they just looked and saw who was coming through, they could realise how quickly they could be like, you need to speak to this person. Well, they love what you're doing. That'll be, that'll be really helpful. So when you're talking about connecting, is that what you're talking about? Being that kind of facilitator? Yes. Mm. Yes. So in complexity theory, if you want to look it up, um, mm. there's um, being a serial connector. Because mm. what I see, I see things in patterns, Nikki. Mm. 
Mm. Um, and I gather that not everybody does that, um, but I do. I see things in patterns and, mm. you know, I'll talk about what might seem to others a random selection of things, but to my mind, they're mm. all connected. Um, so, and then I will see how that person can, if they were linked to that person, then that would help them with some something else. So, mm. so I, I also yeah. know a lot of people. You know, I know a huge number of people. That's another mm. of my strengths. So mm. I could help leaders mm. coming along to say, mm. oh, you really need to talk to them. Because mm. um, I see it. You know, I'm a futurist. Mm. I'm not in mm. the present, generally. Mm. My husband will no doubt tell you. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe he'll treat us. There's something kind of like kind of leads us on to the next sort of thing because you were talking about kind of being sort of entrepreneurial as well, and that's something which, again, not all nurses think about. I wondered because you were looking at solving problems in a slightly different way. If you can tell us a little bit about how you come to do that, yeah, it was by accident, really. So I was made uh, compulsorily redundant as a commissioner um, some time ago, eleven years ago, Mm -hmm. and so I set myself up as a company in order to trade. That's what you do. Um, And then I was on secondment at the time I was made redundant to a huge public health programme running sort of adjacent to Marmot called Mm. um, Healthy Places, Healthy Lives. And um, I started working alongside four communities across um, England, it was, uh, doing different things. And um, then I realised that I had a lot of freedom. Mm. So, for example, in Hereford, we were working in Herefordshire mm. um, with a, a county uh, contractor, you know, a council contractor yeah. um, mm. called Amy. I'll, I'll name them because it was really good experience. Mm. And um, we worked on the idea that actually the routine and manual workers who were the last ones to give up smoking in, in evidence, uh, could help each other mm. to give up smoking rather than mm. necessarily, mm. Um, uh, you know, primary care or NHS services. Mm. And we got the same sort of results by training up co-workers to work with each other and found ways around the prescribing of nicotine replacement therapy and all sorts of things like that. Mm. And and these sorts of experiences just emboldened me to go, well, first of all, I trained in asset-based community development with the University of Exeter and Mm. Connecting Communities uh, Mm -hmm. with my mentor, Hazel Stutley, who's a a retired health visitor. Mm. And then it it just occurred to me that communities were full of strengths and assets. And, you know, if if the routine and manual workers in, in Amy can help each other to give up smoking in various ways what else mm. can we do mm. so let's give it a bash mm. we'll start from there <laughs> so how did you get from realizing that you know people can help themselves if you just give them some support to get started how did you get from there to actually you know like thinking of breath champs and breath stars how did, how did that go across uh-huh. well and um, i kept being asked by well two two main customers really i think the as a as a business mm. uh, the first one was c2 so i spent time um i was apprentice to hazel because mm. you can't learn about asset-based community development without doing it and mm. having somebody at the end of the phone saying how did it go Do, well, mm. you know did you try it like this and did you try it like that 
So having that from somebody who was a trained health visitor as well, you know, this, the stuff that I do is not unusual, by the way, Nick. You know, these are the mm. things that um, com- primary and community nurses have always done, except that I have the time to do it now. Mm. <laughs> but we can get yeah. onto that maybe. And then my, my second main customer was um, a social enterprise in Salford called um, um, Unlimited Potential, uh, mm. led by what I consider to be one of the finest social entrepreneurs in the country, Chris Dabbs. Um, he's an anthropologist. So mm. I work with a lot of people who are not nurses. Mm-hmm. Well, do public health. So of course, of course I do. Yeah. And um, so um, he does social experiments. So I did about six social, I've done about six, maybe more mm. social, ex- social experiments with um, unlimited potential. Yeah. And it sort of blew my mind, really. Not everything works. Of course it doesn't. Yeah. And then from there, I was working with Unlimited Potential and um, all of the GP practices in Eccles, seven GP practices in Eccles. And um, we did some asthma parties. That was slightly me influencing. I don't normally. but um, asthma party? (laughs) Group consultation for children with asthma. Right. AKA asthma parties. No, I get it now. Exactly. An auto party is a party where you talk about asthma. I get that now. <laughs> I can see why you called it that. <laughs> you play games. So part yeah. of this social experiment was mm. it was about co-production. Could mm. the seven practices go into equal partnership mm. with the people of Winton? It was actually Winton, which is a sort of mm. uh, a subpopulation of Eccles in, in Salford. Mm. Um, that was interesting in itself in terms of how the community felt about being in partnership with GPs. They didn't see it as an equal partnership, mm. not not at all. Um, and they were sort of slightly shocked to be in a meeting with their practice manager or their GP. Mm. Um, but they helped me hugely and said, well, you know, w- would you be up for an asthma party? What should we do? Mm. Should we do it like this or should we do it like mm. that? Should we play games? Should we sing songs? Um and breath champ CIC started from there mm. about four years ago in a school followed by a church hall in Winton. Mm. So that leads on to nothing. My mind's there's so many things that you do. I guess there's something around the way that you and when you're talking about like an ass party or something like that, that's really unusual. In, I know you say that everyone does no, not everyone does this. Um a lot of people will give information, they'll give a leaflet, they'll do something that's quite static. Or it'll be quite, as you say, not an equal partnership with somebody telling somebody else about their own experience, which is really, it doesn't sit great. Um, so when you're talking about information, you're talking about storytelling, you're talking play. Can you explain that a little bit? Because I think a lot of practitioners would find that really helpful, really interesting. Well, first of all, I think you've got to know who you're talking to. And the yeah. community is... Um, incredibly differentiated so I've I've learned this also with uh, so I was working with um, a couple of estates um, hard-pressed estates Mm. um, who were uh, first of all it was about building my relationship with them Mm. and that took quite a long while of sitting Mm. in coffee mornings with a group Mm. of mothers Mm. who were really very scary by the way (laughs) Mm. and I remember the point when our relationship became more solid was when they said to me I mean really quite boisterous Mm. um you know uh, and they looked at me and they said 
are we scaring you? And I went, well, yeah, you are actually. And then they just burst out laughing. Yeah. And and then they told me that I was one of them, mm. which is never true. It's never true mm. because I come from Sale, which is mm. like seven, seven miles, miles away. away. <laughs> but yep. I think having that relationship where they actually trusted me, mm. they trusted me, mm. and then they knew I had asthma. Um, mm. I'm very open about... Um, my lung condition and how it affects me, both physically mm. and emotionally. I'll probably be high to hyperventilating all the way through this, for those of you mm. who are interested in that sort of thing. Mm. And um, and then I said to them, you know, would you would you like to do asthma parties, aka group consultations, mm. and the school that I was working with, Westwood Park Primary, mm. and uh, the school said, oh, come in, come in, let's do that. And um, I sort of, you know, I like writing children's stories. Mm. I'd already written one um, about um, Billy the Kid. Billy the Kid beats Rosie's rash. Mm. Uh, I was doing another project at the same mm. time in Winton, mm. um, which was about um, using pharmacy first, using using community mm. pharmacies before before mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. going to GP. Mm. Um, and I knew that I could write stories, so I thought I'll write some stories. So I've written a whole series of stories <laughs> about mm. asthma. Mm. Um, and then what happens is you end up in a group, the same group of mothers, really scary mothers, mm. um, who, uh, and I give them my story and they read it out in front of you mm. and stop at the end of every paragraph and discuss it amongst themselves in front of mm. you, mm. which <laughs> is really quite an event. Yeah. fortunately mm. they liked it and then give mm. the same story to a group of a couple of children actually that I know mm. that are friends of one of the sulfur dads the fathers that mm. I worked with mm. and ask them to mark my homework which their faces were a picture Nikki you should have seen mm. <laughs> mm. uh, will you mark my homework and these two children they were about nine and seven at the time mm. um, decided to mark my homework and they gave me nine out of ten because I've missed some punctuation I do a lot of work in terms of, you know, I put my clinical information in, I Mm. put my whole self in, I Mm. don't, um, the the sort of professional boundary that I have when I do aspects community development is a lot different to say if you're a nurse on a ward, Mm. Uh, there is a boundary, there absolutely is, Um, but the amount of relationship the amount mm. of myself that I have to put in, yeah. what I'm comfortable in disclosing to people, mm. knowing that it could go anywhere at any time, but never really mm. has. Mm. Um, and um, and they know everything about the community. Yeah. And it's a partnership. Mm. And the greatest gift I ever learned doing aspects community development was humility. Mm. I am not right a lot of the time. Some of my ideas. Mm. I, was, I, I was doing a, a little puppet show. It's on Brett Champ's YouTube channel calling mm. as, uh, called Asthma and Sports. Mm-hmm. And I'm working with a puppet called, puppeteer called Jamie Marks. Mm-hmm. And I gave him a script based on what the professor um, of um, sports physio, sports, uh, sports science had told me, five points mm. about children mm. and asthma. And basically he said to me, because he's autistic, so he's, it's openly autistic, by the way. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said to me now, basically, we're not saying it like that. We're going to say it like this. Because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm the puppeteer and this is this is what how it has to be. 
Mm -hmm. So he changed the script. Mm -hmm. It's actually really great. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, oh gosh, I did all that wrong then. And he changed it for me and it was just really great. There's a couple of things that you're saying, which I think, oh, you, you don't seem to find them as hard as maybe some other professionals do. So stuff like um, there's something around having a great respect for the people that you're working with. Because, yeah. I mean, hard-pressed communities know fine well what people say about them and how some people talk and think about them and their potential for well-being. And they hear it all the time in the media and they're sure that they've had it from professionals from time to time. So actually being able to go in and actually value a community in the same way that you would want unconditional positive regard for a person, being able to do that for a community is really important and be vulnerable. You know, like you're saying, like letting people mark your work, tell you you're wrong, change. That that can be really hard for some people. Have you got any advice for staff how they can think about that? And then we'll obviously go over to Dave, this is his area, so soon. <laughs> I am a. I've been trained. You know, I, I was trained by the best by by a health visitor. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and um, she told me that you have to really listen. Above all, I think you have to listen to people um, with with humility. And I got things wrong. I remember meeting somebody uh, in the middle of on Fossil Road in. Um, in Coventry, um, mm. a huge multiracial community. And mm. um, I said, we're going to have a coffee morning and we're going to share, you know, let people know about our community partnership mm. and uh, we're going to do some business cards. And mm. she, and this lady, who's also called Heather, actually, she doesn't mm. use that name, though, and she said mm. to me, basically, Heather, you don't want to be making these business cards too fancy because nobody's going to pick them up if you make them too professional. You know, these little details mm. and, um, you know, you have to start taking it on the chin because, mm. you know, if they can't talk to you honestly about yeah. what's going on, I'm a firm believer that the mm. community, each community knows mm. what it needs to heal itself. Mm. And it is not for me, unless I am from that community, because I'm working in my hometown mm. at the moment mm. in Sale, where, I, you know, Mm. So slightly more confident about the whole thing. Mm. Um, it's not, if, if they give me advice, then mm. I have to take it on the chin and sometimes mm. it really hurts. Um, mm. But if you want a good result, you know, and you want the best for them, mm. then that is what you have to do. Asking mm. the community for help as a professional you know, I put that out on Twitter one time. Yeah, um, my friends know that asking people for help mm. makes them stronger. Mm. It makes them stronger. It's like what what you do for your, your children. You know, mm. um, the same thing. If you do everything mm. for them, mm. um, my being as helpless as possible, which is a learned behaviour that I have, and the mm. most useless nursing great mm. manchester because i'm always asking the community for help and yeah. you just see them you know can i ask your advice you know mm. and i'm looking at somebody who can't even look at me mm. maybe can't even leave the house mm. and i ask them for mm. for some advice mm. and you can see them you know straightening up and yeah. it's hard but 
I think that's where you have to start to really, really listen and know that a lot of the time, unless you're from that community, you're wrong. <laughs> you're probably wrong. And I still yeah. am wrong a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah, I think I can see what you're saying. Dave, what do you think? What have you, what have you been thinking when you've been sat there? Before my thoughts, just a few questions have come in. Uh, I think one of these kind of links into stuff you've already said and, and maybe you feel like you've already answered it, but if you've got any more thoughts, do you, do you have to be part of a community to be able to do community development properly? Well, no, I, I get, I go into all sorts of communities. Um, and um, I go into the sort of communities that have been kicked about a lot. And um, what you've got to you've got to know what you're getting into, you know, because apparently I'm really posh. I didn't know this. <laughs> People themselves would think that I'm really posh. And the reason that they tell me I'm really posh is because of the vocabulary that I have. And it's really quite scary for them. You know, I can dress like them, look like them, behave like them do an ethnographic perspective, go sit in pubs, go and sit in cafes and listen to people. But you've got to know that you are an alien unless you're brought up down the road. First of all, uh, they will regard you with extreme suspicion. And the more the community has been kicked around, the more likely they are to feel alienated with their health professionals, um, unless they've been alongside you for a, a long time. You've got to know that it takes you about six months. On average, it's six months before people will tell you the truth if you have a relationship with them, if they get to that point where they feel safe. I think the advantage as a health professional is that they know that you won't harm them, you know, that you'll do the right thing, and that you will keep any information confidential because people tell me, an awful lot of things that they perhaps wouldn't tell anybody else. Mm. But I think there's huge advantages. Uh, but they also know um, that if they break the law or they, um, they're working with vulnerable people and they do something wrong with those vulnerable people, they know that I will grass. Mm. I am a grass. They know that. I don't have a choice about the whole matter. You know, and I've, I've heard fathers declare that they... They hit their partner on the day out to the coast and I'm looking like this. Um, and they know really on that occasion, the discipline came from other fathers. And that's the other mm. thing, of course, as well. You don't have to intervene. Mm. That actually community self-regulate if you set the right circumstances uh, doing community development work. I think if you want to do community development work, you do like I do, which is apprentice yourself to somebody who's really good at it. Mm. And there's a lot of public health nurses. You may think that I'm unusual. I am not. I think there's a lot of public health and community nurses who do similar things to me. They may have trained a while back, shall we say. Yeah, I, I suppose that's one of the things that I'm sort of interested in exploring a little bit more as well in terms of how much do you think NHS or social care employed staff can do this work now versus other people doing it by things like social enterprises? Just thinking about, you know, the huge cuts that have happened to community nurses over the last few years. And actually, 
is it just best to say, well, actually, there's no capacity to do that, so we need to offload that onto others that maybe can create that capacity? Where I am in Greater Manchester, um, I would say that there is a renaissance in public services, uh, staff in public services, creating a direct relationship with their communities. If you listen to Donna Hall, the former chief executive of Wigan Council, who um, I interviewed on another webinar called the Health Creation Academic Network that I've just set up at hcam.uk. And uh, they set up the Wigan deal, which is um, basically going into partnership, the council going into partnership with the local communities and giving those communities control. She is very clear that the staff of the council, their job is to understand the communities, sit with them, listen to them, and her also as a, as a chief executive, doing the same with her staff. When we say community, it means any community, which can include a community within an organisation. So I don't believe outsourcing community development will help because the other thing that Donna said on that webinar was um, that you need to have intelligence uh, as a commissioner in both senses of the words, you know, doing, doing the right thing, but also having the knowledge of what's happening on Manor Avenue, you know, and you, you, I do a lot of sitting and listening without doing and I remember uh, one of the one of the GPs in Coventry, he was invited to go and listen to local people. And he said, well, well what do you want me to do? And the, the nurse involved um, said, um, we don't want you to do anything. We want you to come along and listen. And he found that really difficult to do. So I think social enterprise is a lot freer. Uh, of course, uh, you know, we still have the right to request um and uh, staff can go off and um form social enterprises uh which are perhaps uh, flexible enough to do some of this work but i think it would be a mistake to outsource that direct engagement yeah and and i think one of the things that sort of picking up from the conversation so far is that bit about sort of local action and local activity uh, and I think obviously at the moment we've got a national government in England that's talking very much about kind of like a levelling up agenda, you know, which, you know, I would sort of suggest is probably very much kind of limited to being a soundbite and, and nothing sort of more progressed than that. I suppose I, I was listening to a podcast a few weeks ago that was reflecting on Hartlepool and, and the you know, the kind of the, the local election that happened there, you know, the, the by-election. And kind of one of the suggestions there about actually you know, communities that have been left behind, the only way that they will be able to kind of respond to that is not by waiting for government to do anything. It will very much be about local action and local activity to, to try and kind of save the day. Do you kind of see that that being, you know, the way forward? Because we've got, you know, we've not got much hope from a national government. Or how, how do you kind of see it panning out? I think I think one of the, one of the things is for certainly for us as health professionals, but organisations, public sector, to understand that it is about economics, and um, the trickle down theory of you know if if the if the nation gets wealthier, the money will trickle down to 
to um, hard, hardest pressed communities, that doesn't really work. So um, I sort of try and listen into some very um, intelligent economists. Um, and uh, first of all, the first thing is that um, investing in people, in, investing in developing them as uh, citizens who can become economically active um even you know I, I work with guys who were fathers who got into employment after 13 between 13 and 23 years and and um out of work and that was a lot to do with believing in in and investing in those um individuals and helping them to earn a living so I, as I said, do a lot of connecting. So I, I, I like to connect people who are looking for work um, to build up their skills, first of all, their confidence, perhaps by volunteering um, in uh, the third sector. That's huge. The evidence base for that is huge. And then when they think they may be ready for work, and some of these people are usually experiencing trauma, usually have had at least three adverse childhood events mm. um, and their behaviour, uh, as, as you perhaps know, is affected by that because mm. it affects the way that your brain actually develops. And I think it's about understanding why people behave as they do. Um, uh, so that there's a lot of that. And then trying to get them um, towards employment. You know, it's not my job to, to find them a job but to create the enabling conditions where they do. And, you know, if you look at um, sort of Lord Gus O'Donnell, for example, you know, the, who um, was the most senior civil servant in the land and an economist, Gus, and he's saying that we shouldn't be measuring society's progress through gross domestic product. We should be measuring society's progress through well-being well-being measures and happiness and understanding what makes people well which is called health creation or salutogenesis mm -hmm. rather than what prevents them from being well not not just rather than but as a balance to what what prevents them from being ill mm -hmm. so what what makes people well having meaning and purpose in their life having a reason to get up in the morning having people to mm -hmm. care about having a job, mm. those sorts of things, or meaningful, meaning, meaningful stuff to do during the day. And a lot of the people that I originally were, you know, was working with, say, in, in, um, in Little Holton in Salford, um, by, the, by the way, Little Holton is an extremely diverse community and lots, of, lots and lots of uh, great folk there. But I was asked to work with the most disadvantaged fathers that I could find um, who, when I found them, didn't necessarily leave the house. Who would mm. um, drink all all uh, drink all night and sleep all day, mm. um, and then I would do what I normally do, which say, "Can can you come and help me? I've I've got mm. got a bit of a problem. Can you?" And immediately I gave them something to do, you know. And we judged a children's competition to find the best best father in Little Holton. Um, that's what we actually did in that particular instance. Mm. Um, but yeah, to focus on well-being, I think, and mm. to focus on helping people to become 
economically active if mm. they're able to be. Mm. Yeah, and I, I think you've you've sort of brought a quite a, a nice few threads together there, really mm. nicely. Uh, and and some personally for me, you know, thinking, you know, you've said really nice things about health visitors tonight, which is always nice here as a health visitor. Uh, and I actually started my health visiting life in Little Holt, and that was my first student placement. Uh, sort of a, a few years ago, so so that was nice to hear. I, th I think as well, just kind of thinking about uh, the comments that you made about GDP, and and it really mm -hmm. sort of reminded me of Bobby Kennedy's speech that he made in '68, uh, where he kind of talked about uh, GDP sort of measures everything except that which is worthwhile. And you know, I'll, I'll share that that speech on on Twitter after tonight's session because it is a really nice one to read, and it really kind of you know again brings some of those threads together. I suppose one of the things that you know I kind of reflect on from my own practice was setting up community groups. You know, thinking about when I was in Salford, uh, the lecture league breastfeeding supporters groups. When I moved over to Tameside, postnatal depression walking and running groups, and, and kind of thinking about the potential that would be there you know, with the current COVID pandemic, you know, the kind of stuff that could have been done uh, online, the, the kind of things now that, that should be done around vaccination and, you know, getting young families into vaccination centres so parents can be protected. Uh, and there's just so much to be done in there. And, and kind of how do you find that you pick the things sort of, are these things passionate to you? Well, there's some things I've been commissioned to do, so that sort of directly, you know, like, you know, how do we improve father's well-being and that of the children? That was one of one of the uh, that was a Dadly does it Dadly does it project, and um, but I think it's to go in with that sort of humility again, Dave. You know, um, I'm working in sale at the moment, which is a, you know you've got to be really careful that you don't impose your own thoughts upon the people around you. Um, and um, at the moment, you know, I'm thinking there's a bit of an air quality issue going on in uh, Carrington Moss, which is on the border between um, Sale, Sale West and uh, Carrington, um, Partington, Ermston, that sort of area. Um, and they're thinking to basically concrete over the moss. And of course, for somebody who's involved in respiratory care like me, um, that is a disaster. Yeah. And uh, so I've joined joined an action group there, and I, but I'm idly thinking um, there is no um, uh, breathing support group. And I spoke to the community respiratory community respiratory rehab team, and they said, "Oh, they'd really welcome that." As would South Manchester, which is right over the border where Withenshaw Hospital is, which is a you know world renowned cardiothoracic hospital. And so I'm thinking, gosh, we really need. A, a breathing group here in Sale. We definitely do. And, and then alarm bells start ringing in my head because it's not what I think at all, despite the fact that I live here uh, and have lung problems and I'm a bit worried about what's happening at Carrington Moss, um, you know, and uh, all those extra houses and uh, industrial units and the traffic on the Carrington Spur. Um, but, you know, I sort of went to Copies Avenue Library, spoke to a few folk about starting singing for lung health there. Uh, could I hire a room? How much would it cost? Then just get chatting to the gardening group. And what struck me about that gardening group was, A, they all had um, uh, mental, mental health problems, which is why they were gardening. And the second thing was that a lot of them had lung problems. 
and you know and I just get into conversations with people I think that's the important thing and during those conversations you're looking say it's your nursing instinct because I have a lot you know there's a lot of stuff that I do that is instinctual um which is never ever to be ignored is that uh, mirrored in the people that I'm speaking to or not mm. and I look for the energy for change that's mm. part of community development is mm. there energy within the community to come come along and work with me because I wouldn't run that group mm. I'd enable it to set up mm. and, and help it to on its way and the BLF the Bullish Wish Lung Foundation mm. said that they would help me and they give me all the gen but unless that community steps forward and shows enthusiasm and I start mm. to see some leaders um, mm. who have probably never been leaders before, <laughs> mm. that's usually mm. the way, not the one mm. who say that they're the leaders, <laughs> yeah. um, I won't do anything. Yeah. Yeah, so I spend a lot sense. of time undoing my ideas because they're not mirrored in the conversations that I'm having. Mm. Which is feedback, isn't it? about that it's not the right thing at the right time for the, that particular group it's interesting well I'll, I'll tell you about um when i worked in north solihull with hazel mm. stute lake and um um we um i was just thinking about that and there's a gp there called Alan chitness mm. and who is absolutely brilliant mm. and um you know we we wanted to know what it what it is that we need to do mm. in north solihull to to make life a bit easier for mm. the citizens there Mm -hmm. And um, Anand came to a meeting. He, he, uh, uh, he described that meeting where sometimes the public services are afraid of what the community might ask for in case it's not within their means. Yeah. And he talked about this meeting and how he went. And first of all, he discovered that there was a vulnerable member of the community that was wandering around and nobody was doing anything about him. Mm. Uh, which was very, very important. And then he mm. discovered that the number one thing that the citizens at that time wanted was basic clothing for their children and mm. uh, a bed so that they didn't have to sleep on the floor. Not much. Yeah. So there's that fear that the community is going to ask for something that you can't give them. Mm. And quite often what they actually want is something very modest. Mm. So I've got a question here. Um, and we don't usually get C uh, CYP um, students um, joining us, so thank you very much for your question. Um, and they, they were saying a lot of what you, 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 they were looking at your work online saying you work with children. Have you got any kind of tips or hints for working in this kind of asset best way? And it reminds me actually, there's one thing that we wanted to talk about because we are heading towards the end. So we need to quickly make sure we've covered all our points. And one of the things that I really liked was the brownie badges. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. <laughs> My first thought when I was working, you know, because this is about my childhood, my um, uncontrolled asthma, mainly because mm. the drugs weren't great then. Mm. Uh, and also I think I had gastric reflux, you know, so every time mm. I laid down, I had an asthma attack when I was a child. Top tip mm. for CYP nurses and those interested in respiratory care in mm. children. Um, mm. And my very, very first thought was to work with the Girl Guides. It really, really mm. was. And actually I started the top and mm. spoke to Girl Guides UK. No, and yeah. ended up um, in Wigan. Long story why I'm in Wigan. I have friends that are um, interested in respiratory care, citizens uh, mm. who are interested in respiratory care, and got me talking to um, uh, the Lancashire South County Commissioner. 
And what occurred to me is that children, I think children um, never ever underestimate children um, and their ability to care for each other. They are interested in each other. They do care about each other. As you get towards secondary school, um, maybe, maybe slightly less so, but certainly at primary and nursery, they're really quite interested. And they're also interested in play therapy, which is very, um, you know, I'm very hot on play therapy. That's how mm. children learn. Um, so why we give them clinical information in a straight way, I really don't know. Um, and fun. Um, so children want to stay to see me again. And story, because as you know, if you've ever revised for an exam, when you put information into story, it is a lot more memorable. And I'd already been in that situation where I was in one, one of the deepest, darkest places of Salford, where I wasn't known <laughs> and stood up in the middle of a Halloween party um, to give them my version of the big bad wolf has asthma and he mm. can't blow the piggy's house down because mm. he's not been, um, he's not been taking his inhalers. Mm. And um, yeah, I thought, wouldn't this make a really great brownie badge? Um, and the county commissioner thought the same. So we've been testing it out for best part of six months mm. from rainbows right the way through to rangers and being able to measure um, how much more children know. Um, and it works. It works fine. Of course, mm. it works fine. They're all making model lungs out of plastic bottles and they're all doing um, pebble art where, mm. you know, you, you paint the pebbles with organs of the body and they have to put mm. it in a diagram of the body and uh, we do respiratory jigsaws and oh what what don't we do really we we, we uh, go hunting for 10 trees that make you wheeze and sneeze mm. and as I'm saying these things to you mm. first of all you know you're smiling at me yeah it's and, fun <laughs> and they're, they're fun yeah and uh, I was telling you wasn't I about treasure hunts mm. in uh, the three parks in sale because I'm trying to make sale the UK's first child asthma friendly town and we're mm. on our way because the people of Sale think it's a bit of an idea. Because yeah. um, if they didn't, I'm on a hiding to nothing. Um, mm. They had to look for people with letters asthma that spell out asthma on their back. And mm. then each one asked a question of the child uh, or adults, depending on their mm. age. And uh, one of the questions was, um, who do you call when somebody has an asthma attack? You know, explaining the symptoms of asthma. Mm. Interesting, a lot of children said 911. <laughs> wow. I know. Wow, that is interesting. Who knew? Yeah. Uh, but after that, a grandmother wrote to me uh, through the medium of Messenger. So mm. I spend a lot of time nursing on Facebook. Mm. And she wrote to me and said that her preschool child had identified a friend in the playground who was having an asthma attack and alerted mm. a member of staff appropriately. Preschool. Amazing. Do you not think? Well, these I things think, I do think more scary away. than being a kid and not understanding how to help, but being able to have those skills is massive, isn't it? All of a sudden, your it's life is different. Mind blowing. Mm. The, mm. the the grandmother and took the time out to mm. uh, tell me that. Mm. You know, I had another. Uh, I'd written an article for Independent Nurse because I write extensively nursing journals, mm. and I'd written us a a, a story. I'd written an article around singing. Um, helping with children's asthma because um, I test that out because we do yeah. a lot of adults with COPD and singing 
So I was doing um, Breath Stars, which is my project mm -hmm. of singing lung health with children. Mm -hmm. And a German parent had read that article in Independent Nurse mm -hmm. and thanked me because his teenage daughter had, in his words, sung away her asthma. Yeah. Right. And, and honestly, I could weep. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Why it's don't we have social solutions more where there's an evidence base? I was looking at the evidence mm. base, actually. Um, singing's not in the um, BTS sign guidelines or nice guidelines yet, but I'm hoping it will be because the evidence base isn't strong enough, I think. But mm. it works. Mm -hmm. Let's come back to Dave just before we um, get ready to close. So I think there's a couple more um, bits to talk about that have come through on social media. Yeah, so we've had a few comments. Kay said, measured by how the vulnerable are treated, supported, enabled, so true, takes time and not discharge them so quickly. So that was just sort of referring to something that you mentioned earlier. And then Sarah's made a couple of comments. Uh, fabulous Heather, you all, mm. make, uh, you all make sense. So I hope that means us, me and you as well, Nikki. Uh, and, uh, as an ex, <laughs> and as an ex-health visitor, it was my live pre-COVID if only people mm. could hear you in a, on a wider platform. Uh, to be fair, we're Facebook to the world tonight, so uh, you know we're, we're, we're doing our bit. Uh, we're, we're doing our bit, aren't we, Nikki? Uh, and then also, I've tried to make groups happen, and you need that energy. You can't make it happen with apathy. And I think you're absolutely right there. It can take a huge sort of uh, amount of effort to do it, but hopefully the effort is much sort of worth it uh, when you get results from it. So uh, yeah, there may well be more that I've missed out on because I've been busy tweeting myself, Nikki, but those are just a few highlights that I've picked mm. up on. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's 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 talking about relational healthcare rather than transactional healthcare. You know, this idea that you have the right to go and talk to anybody about anything and tell them what to do with themselves and then they don't like it. Well, of course they don't. Nobody likes that. It's such a weird thing that, that health professionals are shocked by it. Like I've I turn up at your doorstep, I tell you what's wrong with you. I assume that you are incapable and then I wonder why you don't want my unsolicited advice <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> yeah I'm sorry shock, to tell but I don't do lifestyle lifestyleism mm. at all mm. I don't talk to people about their lifestyle yeah. mm. um and as as you know I fo focus on the most disadvantaged when I when yeah. I say this to you and uh, that it's Maslow and basically mm. there's no way because the fathers have shown me this, because a lot of them, most of them smoked, and many of them roll-ups, and worse, as you probably can, can appreciate. Um, and um, we did a lot of work together on um, enabling them to be capable, not resilient, capable, to building their capabilities through usually me giving them various tests and being the most useless person and needing lots of help, as I've explained. And then they'd come up to me or they'd text me or message me or whatever it was. And they go, hey, um, it's a month since I smoked. Right. Mm. When you're in the situation that some of yeah. the citizens that I work with yeah. are in, the last thing that they want to do is give up smoking. And the last thing they want from somebody mm. like me is mm. me bringing up the subject of them smoking. Mm. It might be the only thing keeping them together. Mm. And they know what I think, mm. you know. Oh, yeah. I don't even, I don't move a muscle. I really, really don't. Mm. I do get out of the way of the smoke because of my lungs. Um, but um, they know 
and they'll, you know, you, you can see me on, on the Australian APNA uh, conversation. I went to a um, conference in Australia for practice nurses. And I'll tell the story, which you can't tell now because we're running out of time, but, but yeah. basically how I did a health check as a practice nurse and uh, did all the wrong things, told him that he was eating the wrong foods and he was smoking and da-da-da. Uh, and actually, um, he changed everything because nurses are incredibly powerful, including mm. stopping drinking without any detox, which absolutely scared me to death. <laughs> yeah, I can um, imagine. But he was he was ready, you know, Prochaster mm. and Diclementi cycle change. Also, Absolutely. they've got to be ready for you. And if they're not ready mm. for you, you might as well talk to the wall. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, but he was ready for me um, mm-hmm. and completely changed, changed life. But most of the time now, I don't even bring any of that up because mm-hmm. they know. Mm-hmm. Mm. I think we should probably stop there because I think there's things that that students will be picking up on. They, they, they understand the Maslow, they understand the Pachaska, and all that stuff is going to start to make sense. So I think I can't thank you enough for, to, for today's um, session because it, it ties together so many different things that all the fields of nursing need to understand. Um, and also that idea about, you know, how people can lead and also how nursing is not just ward-based or hospital-based. It's actually happening on social media. It's happening it on WhatsApp. It's happening on phones. It's happening in people's lives. And, and I, I love the, the, the relevancy of this work. I think it's really exciting. Um, I wonder if you've got anything that you wanted just to leave the audience with, and then we'll come to Dave just to finish us and close out. Hmm. Um, I think to look, look, everybody's good at something. Yeah, that's the one. Everybody's got, got uh, good at something. And mm. in my um, experience doing um, asset-based community development, mm. it is the most unlikely character who will make the biggest difference. It isn't the community leader, the one who talks most. Mm. It is usually the one that's been hiding in their house for three years, who can't even look you in the eye, can't mm. shake your hand, and... Uh, you will see as a health professional something in that person and it is your job to try to draw it out of them by telling them what they're good at. Mm. And if you're right, they will transform in front of you. Thank you for that. Dave, is there anything you wanted to add? Uh, Right, so I did want to say about next week's episode. Uh, We've got a big one coming up next week. Uh, Obviously, uh, hard to beat Heather, but they're going to try. Uh, so it's uh, <laughs> Professor Alison Leary is uh, joining oh. us next week. Hmm. Uh, and she is going to be talking about Protect Nurse and the petition that she's been running. Uh, that's a really important issue for anyone that is a nurse and anyone that ever receives healthcare from nurses. Uh, lots of people don't know that nurse isn't actually a protected title. The protected title is registered hmm. nurse. And uh Alison's trying to change that. You and I, we've been really concerned about that for a while too. Mm. uh, And we've been arguing that this needs to change too. So she's going to be on next week with our lead for regulation, Jane Beach, and they'll be discussing that. Uh, And then we're going to go the week after to talk about uh, student nurses. Uh, We've got, I think, three or four student nurses that are going to join us on that episode. And then the week after, we're going to have Kath Gamble on to talk about leadership and change. So we've got a nice kind of arc there of, of lots of really relevant uh, subjects mm. coming up. Uh, so I just wanted to sort of say that before we we left tonight, Nikki. Hope you don't mind. I thought it was excellent. I'm glad you did it. 
So thank you very much, everyone, for your time tonight. Um, if you do have questions, please stick them on either the Twitter feed or on Facebook, and we'll circle back and have a look over the next couple of days. But thank you so much. It's been lovely to see you. Um, and take care, guys. Night-night. Night-night. Thanks, Heather. Bye. Bye. Bye.